glad to be back. I feel like it's been a long time since I've been away. If you're new, good to have you. Welcome to Summit Christian Fellowship. Uh, we're on week two of a, of a series uh, going through nine of the minor prophets um, this summer. So we're really excited what we're doing. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Um, it's been done before though, so rest assured. Um, we're going through a book a week, looking at the whole, a whole book at a time. Last week, Ben tackled uh, the prophet Joel, and this Sunday, I'm going to look at the prophet Amos. And so one of the things I wanted to bring to your attention, however, is this little booklet. It's on the bookshelf in the back. This resource was created, compiled, edited, presented to you by Pastor Ben himself. He is really gifted in terms of graphic design. He got these edited and, and, and printed, um, and they're really helpful. It has the, the nine minor prophets that we're going through. It has an introduction for each book so you can get some background and some context and how it relates to the gospel. And then he's taken, uh, we've got a timeline here in the front as well. And then we've got from the Bible Project, uh, their, their, I don't know, charts, I don't know what you call these. It just, it give, it's kind of a pictorial representation of the structure of each one of the prophets. And so this is fantastic. This is really, really helpful. Ben, thank you. And they're free of charge. So please feel free to go grab one of these, mark it up, write in it. There's space for taking notes. Um, really, really helpful. So uh, again, Ben, thank you. Well, here we are. Um, just a little bit about my time in uh, Colorado, at least, a couple weeks ago. Um, I, was, I was living the bachelor life down there because uh, this year my wife wasn't able to come. Last year we had uh, Kelly came and Dane when he was just six weeks old. Um, this year with, with two little ones, it was, it was a lot to, uh, to offload onto other families. So Kelly stayed back and I was living the bachelor life in Colorado at the huddle. And so what this meant for me is when everyone else is off uh, going on peaceful walks with their wives, I was uh, figuring out what I wanted to do. And I, quite frankly, I was uh, maybe overusing the hot tub. I, I really got a ton of use out of the hot tub in the mornings and in the evenings. And uh, I love it. Well, I'd, I would have a hot tub if I could. I, I, I'm, I, I grew up with a hot tub at my dad's house and so was looking forward to that. So it's Monday evening after the first full day of the huddle. I believe it was Monday evening. I, 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 everyone kind of goes off and they're either heading down to the village or they're, they're off with their wives doing something. And I'm by myself, and so I head out to past the pool to the hot tub and thinking I'm going to watch the, the sunset go down and just enjoy some time out there, reflect on a couple of really good messages that we heard that day and just kind of, kind of process it all. And as I'm heading out to the hot tub, uh, I notice in the pool there are really the, these two young boys, 19 years old, but they were really loud but they were having a blast. They weren't being obnoxious at all. They were just having fun. It was, it was, it was childlike fun they were having in uh, the pool. And it was almost, it, 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 was, it was a kind of glee that they were embodying. Like, like they hadn't been in a situation like this before. Like they hadn't been to a pool this nice, at a place this nice. They were having a blast. And before I came, they had the whole space to themselves and so I go and I get up in the hot tub and then they, uh, right at the same time, transition into the hot tub and, uh, and sit down and we just talked for the next hour, hour and a half with these two guys. Apparently they were working for a week up in, uh, in, in Beaver Creek there in Colorado at this kind of resort village 
and they were installing gutters on these high-rise lodges. And, uh, and in the evenings, they'd stay in hotels and they'd have a blast. And uh, I got to know Gage and TJ uh, uh, that night for, for a, a good time in the hot tub. In fact, I felt like a boiled lobster afterwards because I stayed way too long in there. Um, but it was worth it because I, I, I gained two friends out of it. You know, they, they, they seemed like really wonderful guys. Uh, they asked what we're doing there at the, uh, at, at the lodge. They noticed that there's a large group of us. And uh, I said we're just a group of pastors who... Um, have descended on Beaver Creek, and we're, we're really, we love Jesus, and we care about church planning, and that's, we're just spending time together, and that kind of got the ball rolling in that, you know, in that direction of conversation of what do you think about Jesus, and what do you think about Christianity, and what's your experience there, and all, all that stuff, and, and uh, um, Gage was, was really honest about the fact that he, he is not a Christian, but had been at one point. Um, when he was younger, he was exposed to a youth group. A youth pastor invested in him, and he stopped all that because, uh, according to, to Gage, he wasn't living the life. And he really didn't want to say he was doing it if he wasn't doing it. He didn't want to say he was following Jesus if he wasn't following Jesus. It was really important to him. And we, we got talking more and more, and um, I was just asking, you know, what what is it that keeps you right now from from following Jesus? And Gage told me a story about a, a guy that he knew from his hometown in Colorado, who um, was just a normal buddy that he would party with, and um, uh, was notorious for kind of wild living, and uh, had a had a kid, um, a little girl, and. Uh, then this guy got saved. He got radically saved. His whole life became about Jesus. In fact, he probably needed some more healthy, sound folks shaping him and discipling him because there sounds, there's actually some, some goofy things about this guy. So th- this is, a lot of people know of this guy in town. He's the guy that, that now that he's been saved, he carries, carries a, a literal wooden cross through town. And that's what he does. He, uh, so, but, to, but to Gage, that's really radical. And it's really compelling. This guy would be willing to just step out and walk through town carrying a cross. Um, what wasn't so compelling to Gage about this guy who got saved is the fact that when he got saved, he, this little girl that he had, he left her. He got married to a Christian woman and had kids with her and moved away. And that didn't smell right to Gage. It wasn't, uh, it, he, he said, it, that just didn't seem right to me, what he did. And so what I began to do over the next few minutes is just, tr- I mean, I fumble through conversations like this. I mean, this is not a humble brag, because if you would have been there, you would have said, like, Ryan, aren't you a pastor? Don't you know how to do these things? I don't you have these conversations. I'm texting Ben and Josh, asking for prayer afterwards, because I felt like I fell on my face. But um, I, I was trying to explain, and I'm, I'm studying Amos at this time. You know, I'm, I'm reading through Amos, and, and then meanwhile, Gage is saying that he's just bothered by this hypocrisy he sees in this really notorious Christian in town, this notorious, fairly new convert. And um, 
what I was trying to explain to him is that what I see on the pages of Scripture is that God actually hates that kind of hypocrisy more than you do. I mean, your, your, what, the way you sound right now, the way you hate that, the way you loathe that, actually sounds quite a bit like the book of Amos. You read in, if you have your Bible open, turn to Amos. In chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, Amos says this. God says this to the people of Israel through the prophet Amos. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You heard that phrase before? It's famous. Friends, the message of Amos is a call. What's what's Amos about? It is a call to Israel to return to the Lord in wholeness, to turn away from hypocrisy, to turn away from a half-hearted devotion, a complacent devotion to the Lord, to a wholehearted devotion devotion, a wholehearted communion to the Lord. The Lord sees not only the sin and evil and injustice of the nations around Israel, but He sees the sin of His people. He sees the hypocrisy of His people and He takes it seriously. Chapter 3, verse 2 is a key passage in the entire book. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God has this special relationship with Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Friends, Israel was living in a time where everything looked okay. As they looked around, yes, there was the divided kingdom, Right? They were at odds in one sense with Judah, but Israel and Judah were both doing pretty well. They were living in a time of material wealth, of economic stability, of relative economic stability, and geopolitical peace. There wasn't a war pending that they could see. Even though this was during the divided kingdom, things were going relatively well for Israel and for Judah. At least that's what they thought. See, we judge by the appearance. We judge a book by its cover. But the Lord sees the heart. And and Israel's heart was far from the Lord. And so he raises up this prophet. Israel's heart was far from the Lord. They They were doing the religious things. They were actually keeping many of the religious traditions and ceremonies. They were they were a singing people. They, were, they made offerings. They were a giving community. They tithed, right? They tithed often. They were, they were doing a lot on the surface that looked right, but their devotion, their worship to Yahweh, it was mixed. It was mixed with idolatry. They set up, all, we're going to worship Yahweh and we're going to worship this other stuff as well. We're going to set up these different altars. We're going to, we're going to kind of do religion 
as we see fit. Like I, I get that this is the way it's been done in the past, but this is how, how we want to do it right now. We're going to include some of the gods of the nations around us. So their, their religion was mixed. Their worship and their devotion was mixed. It was not only mixed with, with idolatry. It was, it was mixed with just sensuality, perversion, baseness. The, the sexuality was all mingled together with their worship. We're just going to sleep with whoever we want and we're going to even do it in the name of religion. Things are getting pretty dark and ugly here in Israel. Their, their worship was mixed with, with perversion. Their worship was also mixed with injustice. They could go to church on Sunday, so to speak. And then all throughout the week, not only not notice the poor, not notice the weak, but despise them, exploit them, deceive them. This is a lot of what we see in the middle chapters of the prophet Amos in his message. There, there was a spiritual deadness to the people of God. They lived in luxury and wealth, but they were numb in their hearts to the true state of things. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been where, like just looking on the surface, everything looks well? The, the, maybe the church might look like it's doing well. They've got a really nice building. Everything seems to be going well. But really, there is a deep abiding unhealth. Maybe inside of the church you were a part of. Maybe inside of you. God sees. God sees. Look at chapter 6, verses 4. This really sums this spiritual deadness in the, in the midst of living in wealth and material prosperity. Starting in chapter 6, verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on, onto their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall and who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who, who drink wine in bowls. Have you ever drunk wine from a bowl before? That is a, that, apparently, that's a, uh, only the, the elite get to do that. Um, and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. See, in the Old Testament, material prosperity, material prosperity wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but the combination of material prosperity and a deep numbness and deadness to God was dangerous. And that's exactly what was going on. There was a complacency and a contentment just that we have kind of all of our stuff taken care of. That we've got a house over our head and we've got some of the finer things in life. Well, enough is enough. God's patience is long and great, but it has a limit for Hard-hearted, unrepentant rebellion. That's what was going on in Israel. So God lays hold of Amos, the Judean herdsman, and the dresser of sycamore figs, the shepherd, the farmer. God places, a, like his name indicates, places a burden on Amos, a prophetic burden. He calls him out, and he makes him a messenger to his people. Chapters 
1 and 2, just an overview of the book, friends. Chapters 1 and 2 is God's word of judgment against Israel's neighbors around them. Chapters 2 through 6 is God's word of judgment against Israel. Chapters 7 through 9 are the visions that God gives Amos that also outline this. It's like you hear of God's judgment and then you see God's judgment in these visions. And then the end in chapter 9 ends with this bright ray of hope for the future of the people of God. But right in the middle of these nine chapters is chapter 5. And chapter 5 for Amos is a call to repent. It's a call to hear and return to the Lord. Even though judgment is coming, Amos is saying as God's mouthpiece, return to me. Even though though your sin has wrecked your life, return to me. Seek me and live. Therefore, Amos' message isn't fatalism. Divine judgment is coming, but it's always a good time to repent. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. Chapter 5, verse 14. Amos says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. This is a people who are complacent, who think that the Lord is with them. Right, who think that God is by virtue of uh, uh, their prosperity, of their comfort, of their, their lack of sickness, that God is somehow for them. They're interpreting God's, God's favor through all those very accidental things. He's saying, return to me. Seek good, not evil. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Israel. So Amos is this message of coming judgment, but there is also in the midst of this this glooming, ominous judgment, there is a call to right now, every one of us turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord in our hearts. Lift our eyes up to the hills. Lift them up off of ourselves. Lift them up off of our idolatry. Lift them up off of our pain and lift our eyes up to the hills where our help comes from, as Jake reminded us in the video this morning. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So I was thinking about how, how do I summarize the book of Amos? You know, it's kind of the, the, the Lord, the lion, roars in judgment and restores in tenderness, something like that. He roars and restores, but it's kind of hard to say. Uh, but there's b- these twin dynamics there, right, of God roaring in holy judgment and restoring his people, restoring even a remnant of his people in mercy, in grace, and in kindness. And so I'm not going to use that as my outline going forward. What I'd like to do is just make several observations that I hope will sum up for us the message of this book and hopefully build on what we, what we heard last week from the prophet Joel. The, the first observation is this, friends. God's justice extends to all the nations of the earth. Notice the way the book begins. It doesn't begin with, with Israel. It begins with these messages of judgment of punishment that are coming for Israel's surrounding neighbors, the surrounding peoples. 
So you hear this phrase over and over, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have, in this case, threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And so what you have at the very beginning of this book is a God who sees not just what's going on with respect to the church, to the people of God, and in that time to Israel, but he sees what's going on with with what one nation who isn't his covenant community is doing to another nation who is not his covenant community. See, God sees all of the injustice that's happening in the world, not just the injustice that's committed against the persecuted church, not just the injustice that's committed against the people of God historically. God sees all of the injustice, all of the inhumane treatment, all of the acts of Uh, of, of crime on a global scale, God sees it. He saw it in the day of Amos and he meant to deal with it and he, and nothing's changed. He causes one nation to rise and one nation to fall so that perfect justice is meted out at, at, at the end of the book in chapter nine, he describes these nations as all the nations who are called by my name. They might not be Israel, but he's the creator of the heavens and the the whole earth. All of human affairs are under his sovereignty and under his sway, and he will hold to account every nation and every individual who is made in his image. That's what Amos teaches us. God's not some tribal deity that, that only cares about his tribe, his people, this small relatively insignificant people, Israel. No, he's the God of the whole earth. We see that right away. He cares about the unspeakable and inhumane atrocities that have been committed against people who bear his image all over the globe. He, he sees right now the, the labor camps in North Korea. He sees the human trafficking in the Philippines. He sees the the genocide in Sudan. He sees the darkness and depravity of Islamic extremism. He sees the hatred and the bigotry of white supremacy in all its global forms, past and present. He sees it, and he loathes it, and he deals with it. In Amos' day, God promises to hold these nations to account. And friends, for for those of us who tend to wring our hands over what's happening in the world, let me remind you that nothing has changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Though sin and evil abound, God's hands are not tied. He will work for perfect justice, justice in the world. And we can rest assured of this. That's the first observation. It's interesting. Amos is a beautiful piece of literary work. He begins with judgment on the nations, and then chapter 9 ends with somehow the nations getting folded in to God's purposes of grace. As as the, the, the Davidic kingdom is going to be rebuilt and expand and and prosper. The, the people of God are going to, it says, possess the nations. 
there's going to be a kind of new humanity that's bigger and broader than Israel. The nations are going to get somehow folded into this. So he starts with judgment on the nations and the book ends with this beautiful mercy extended toward the nations. Somehow, we'll see more later. Number two, second observation, Israel's special status, friends, makes her more culpable for judgment, not less. We often think that because of the grace of the gospel, the grace of the same God here in Amos, that that it somehow gives us a pass to live lives of moral compromise, a lack of integrity, but it's just not true. And we see that here in the book of Amos. Great grace had been shown to Israel. I mean, here's what's going on. As, as Amos begins in the first, few chap, in the first uh, two chapters, you hear these, these, the word from the Lord coming. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four. For three transgressions and for four. And what's happening is there's this circle of judgment that's created around Israel. That you can, if you chart it out on a map, there's actually this, this circle of all of Israel's neighbors that are getting called out to be held accountable and to be judged by Yahweh, Israel's God. But then what happens? You can just—it's kind of like the prophet Nathan does with David. He's like, "What would you do if there was this really rich guy who had everything, and he stole the one baby lamb that this poor guy had? Would that make you mad?" David's like, "Yeah, that make me mad." He's like, "You're the man. That's you. You're the problem." Similar to that, here, it, God's calling out all the surrounding nations, and then all of a sudden, what look what looks like a circle of judgment turns into a kind, of, a kind of target with Israel as the bullseye. You look at the, just look at the size, look at your text, the size of the section where Israel is judged. In chapter 2, verse 6 and following, all the way down, really you could say chapter 2, verse 6, for the rest of the book. It's disproportionate, isn't it? God takes Israel's sin seriously. You could, you could say even more seriously than he does the nations around them who aren't in covenant with him, though he does take them seriously as well. This is really interesting to me. You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Friends, Israel, the people of God, had every reason not to walk in rebellion. And this is the Lord's message to them. After calling out their injustice, in chapter 2, verse 9, God is saying to them, it it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height, they were really big, whose height was like the height of cedars and who who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for, for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so? I mean, I, 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 I delivered you. I raised you up, I brought you out, I led you, I provided for you, I gave you a land, I, just, I, just gave, I caused you to inherit all of this stuff that didn't belong to you. 
I, I gave you a future. I gave you gifts from every angle. And you, do, you have every reason to trust in me. You have every reason to return to me. And Christian, let me ask you, has God not been gracious to you as well? Has he not delivered you from, from all of your enemies? From a life of darkness? From a life of deadness? Has he not given you? Has he not caused you to inherit, to possess a world of promise and life and grace in the Lord Jesus to possess and to enjoy forever? Has He not given you gift and blessing upon blessing through the church? Have you not been given fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and pastors and mentors and coaches and friends in Christ? Even in times, I mean, in all honesty, even in times of tragedy in your life, in times of loss, has the Lord ever forsaken you? Has He ever left you alone? Never once. Never once. Were you ever orphaned? Never once. You have been a son or a daughter to Him. He has never given us a reason to shake our fist at Him. The Lord has been with you every step of the way. And if past grace wasn't enough to secure our single-hearted return to the Lord, what about the, the, the present discipline? of the, I mean, this doesn't apply to all of us. This applied to Israel at the time. I mean, they... They had been walking in unbelief and in, in disobedience to the covenant for a long time. And God had begun to discipline them as a son, as a father disciplines a son. In fact, in, in Deuteronomy, it's listed out. If you guys walk away from me, here are all the curses of the covenant. You're going to experience pain if you walk away from me. And they, God was helping them. God was, God was providing this pain to, to be redemptive for them. We see this in chapter 4, verse 6 and following. I'm going to read a, a longer section here. But I want, I want to give you a sense of like, Israel had every reason to return to the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 6, it says, I, God says through the prophet, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Okay, that means famine. That doesn't mean dental hygiene. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me. That should have caused you to return. I also withheld the rain from you. And uh, w- w- when there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. And one field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. Don't you think something strange is going on? I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me. 
I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. Do you hear a a refrain? I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Israel has every reason to return to the Lord. They are, they are without excuse. So what's helpful for us to do, just a little kind of an interpretive you know, guide, a coaching cue for us as we go through the minor prophets it's it's most helpful for us to not see Israel as those knuckleheads they just couldn't get their stuff together um, when we easily look down our nose maybe um, there might be some inherent anti-semitism maybe brooding underneath that friends the way we ought to read this story about Israel is by it, treating it as though it is a mirror. As we look at Israel's story, we see our own hearts. We see what we are capable of, what we do. Don't we have every reason in the world to trust in God? Hasn't He shown just heaps of grace on us in Christ? If I had every one of you stand up, if you're in Christ and share your testimony, isn't there all kinds of ways you could point to that God has come and entered into your life? And even, even the hard things, the discipline, isn't, isn't that supposed to cause us to turn to Him? And we have, but we don't, right? We don't. Somehow we let it drive us farther and farther away. Here's my third observation from this book. Um, Spiritual, moral, and social renewal always go together. You'll often hear the book of Amos quoted only to support a kind of maybe a social gospel of some sort, to only help us raise our awareness of some social concern. Um, This this book is rightly alluded to for that. It's rightly quoted for that, but it's more than that. Friends, the message of Christianity is that true, where true spiritual renewal exists, character transformation and social concern also spring to life. These things come together. The message of Christianity is not moralism, and the message of Christianity isn't social justice. But morality and social justice happen when God is really with us. When God is really in our midst through the risen Christ. Conservative Christians tend to focus on eternal needs at the expense of addressing present felt needs that people have in our midst or in our community. Progressive or liberal Christians tend to focus on present felt needs at the expense of someone's eternal needs, like salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. Maybe our more fundamentalist, legalistic Christian Christians tend to focus on, 
on moral behavior, right? I just want people to act better at the expense of both the message of the gospel of grace and the manifest, manifestation of the gospel in social concern. You see, how we, we, we have a way of kind of picking what brand of Christianity can kind of isolate one of these things, either the, the gospel of grace or, or behavior transformation or, or social consciousness. But the, the book of Amos, as Scripture, brings these three together and says they ought not to be separated from one another. When God is not among us, friends, what what the book of Amos shows us is that our gatherings will be some sort of cocktail of man-made religion. There will be apathy toward the Lord and toward the needs of one another and toward the needs of everything that happens in Puyallup and everything that happens in Tacoma. They're just going to be, it's not my business. It's my city, but that's not my city. Right? When, when, when there's not spiritual renewal going on, that's when moral hypocrisy will be tolerated among us. It just won't, we'll just be able to just get along as normal, as usual. Right? Uh, there will be all kinds of moral compromise in our life, and it will never be addressed. It will just kind of go side by side with with church attendance, community group. That's what happens when, when our hearts are far from the Lord like it was in the day of Amos. When, but when God is really among us, when Christ shows up through the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be deep spiritual life that will have ripple effects into every one of these areas. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. We, we tend to want to pull these things apart. We want a compartmentalized gospel, but the true gospel decompartmentalizes every one of us, doesn't it? Slowly, over time, and it makes us whole people. People of joy, people of character and integrity, increasingly, and people who care about things that are bigger than us and our family, that care about the cities that we live in, the neighborhoods that we live in. It's, it's something that the gospel does to us. And we see that even in the book of Amos. The gospel delivers us from idolatry. It dignifies our sexuality it dials in our concern. I'm not going to keep using these. It dials in our concern for the weak and the poor and the fatherless. And it brings with it a godly grief and a fullness of joy. The message of Amos militates against any attempt to separate character from social concern, from true spiritual communion with the living God. That's the third observation. Fourth observation is the day of the Lord will be both scary and wonderful. It will be both grave and gracious. It will be both terrible and terrific. We see both of those things happening here. Ben introduced to us this concept of the day of the Lord last week. It's mentioned in the prophet Joel. It's also mentioned by Amos over and over and over again. 
The people in, in Israel's day actually looked forward to the day of the Lord. It was this, this promise in their minds of this, it was a day of deliverance for them. They, 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 they felt like because of their proximity to all the privileges of the covenant, that they would somehow be, be delivered when the day of the Lord came. But Amos, on behalf of the Lord, said, no, the day of the Lord is actually a day of darkness for you. It's actually a day of judgment. It's a day of gloom. What woe to you, it says in, in chapter 5, verse 18, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is a day of darkness and not light. Friends, the, the, the five visions that begin in chapter uh, 7, the five visions Amos received from the Lord show that the day of the Lord would indeed be, it's a day of judgment, right? There's a plumb line that's set. There's, it could be a day of fire. It could be a day of locust. It could be, there's a, there's, the Lord stands by the altar and shakes everything. This, this is a day of darkness and judgment. So we ask, well, maybe it was the coming earthquake that's prophesied. Or was it the coming exile by the Assyrians where Israel gets routed from their land? Or in other places, it sounds like it's the, the end of the world. Which one is it? The answer is yes. Yeah, all of the above. Pastor Ben mentioned last week, if you weren't here for last week's sermon, one really helpful tip on, on interpreting prophecy in the Old Testament is understanding that the prophet and us often see these things in this, in this passage uh, like we do Mount Rainier and the Cascade Mountain Range. We see it from ground level, right? And we, 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 have, a, we have a difficulty discerning the depth and the distance between peaks it just looks like when I was in Southern California, we saw the sunset and the, the mountain range looked like literally one line. It was beautiful, but it had zero depth. But from God's perspective, from above, we see that this day of the Lord could have several different fulfillments. So when the day of the Lord comes, it will be grave and dark and a total end to God's rebellious people. But that's not all that Amos says about the day of the Lord. It will be horrific. It will be a day of God's justice. But it will also be what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. He goes on there. This is beautiful. Can, I, can we just read this together? The, re, the, the rest of chapter nine. Behold, the days are coming. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains, does this sound familiar from last week? The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. So it's both of these things. It's a day of justice and it's a day of mercy and grace. 
There's a couple ways to understand this. One is to recognize, okay, the, the exile is going to come. That's the day of judgment. After that, there's going to be kind of this rebuilding hope for the people of God. But there's also a day. There's also a day that's coming when we see both God's severe justice and his severe mercy meet. And they don't meet in exile. They meet in crucifixion. There's, there's this day that comes, this day that came 2,000 years ago when the wrath of God would be poured out for the sin of Israel and, and for the whole world, not through, not through the banishment of the people of God, but of the banishment of the Son of God on a Roman cross. It's here on the cross where we see the day of the Lord reach a kind of prophetic climax where justice and mercy meet in, in all of its beauty in all of the divine wisdom to bring these things to pass. It's here where God truly roars in holy justice and restores in tender mercy. Uh, Friends, we don't quite see how it all works out together in the book of Amos, but we see from our perspective, right, from the perspective of this point in history, we see these things coming together beautifully in the gospel that we celebrate together. And, uh, and the nations are folded into this as we see in the last half of chapter 12. And I, I, I just want to enjoy this together. I just want to end by enjoying this grace that's promised to us in Jesus together. He says, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. In the Exodus, Israel was delivered from Egypt and planted in the land. But they were planted in such a way that they could fall away. But somehow what God is going to do through this coming day of the Lord in Jesus Christ is going to be so powerful and so unilateral that nothing is going to be able to change the grace of God that's going to be flowing to you in Jesus there is, there is such a unilateral, powerful grace that we experience in Christ that we shall never again be uprooted. There are all kinds of promises here for us in this book. It's helpful to interpret it on its own for the people of Israel in the day of Amos, but friends, we have to read this as Christians, don't we? We have to understand this through the, through the lens of history and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and there are riches for us in that. Would you bow with me, and, and uh, I'll pray as the worship team comes back up. Father, thank you for the book of Amos. There is this, this heart cry right in the middle of the book of Amos to return to me, return to me, return to me, seek me, and live Father, we bow our hearts to you and we ask that you would help us to turn to you and to see the way that your, your power and your mercy, your justice and your grace meet on the day of the Lord, on the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to worship your son and to, to be by your grace what Israel was not. In Jesus' name. Amen.